This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. There's been chatter that started uh, throughout the summer. Uh, of course, the uh, new LRT uh, on the horizon. And the HSR wants to run it. Uh, the great thing about the situation the way it is now is the people that are going to have to build it uh, will then have to operate it. So they got to be accountable for it all. You don't just build it and walk away, so to speak. Um, so I, I'm not sure other than, um, again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why it would uh, or, or what the reasoning is for wanting HSR to run this, especially in lieu of the recent uh, reports that have come out about uh, their soaring absenteeism. So uh, all I can see this doing is adding extra cost to the city, who, by the way, have got a free LRT. Uh, for all intents and purposes, I know it's not free, but guess what? If we don't get it for free, someone else is going to get it for free, and you're going to pay the same amount of tax either way. So if you want to give it to Guelph or uh, Grimsby or whoever else is going to get one next, uh, I guess that's up to you. Uh, anyway, uh, so now, of course, everybody's been waited, waiting with bated breath to see, oh, is the government going to let us uh, run our own LRT? And of course, the you know decision is basically said, yeah, we think it's a stupid idea. Uh, I'm putting those are my words, by the way, not theirs. Uh, but that's how uh, I've interpreted. Uh, MetroLink says that while the Hamilton Street Railway can run Hamilton's LRT line, the Crown Transit Agency recommends against the idea. In a letter to City Manage Manager Chris Murray, MetroLink's CEO Phil uh, Verster warns that Hamilton would be forced to short shoulder a list of onerous responsibilities and legal obligations uh, as part of a local agreement, which equals more cost. <sighs> You know, sometimes I just don't understand Hamilton. Uh, you know, who wants to win when we can have so much fun losing all the time? Uh, feel free to offer your opinion. Of course, uh, many ways to do that, as I've just mentioned. Let's bring in Ryan McGreal, editor, Raise the Hammer, and he is with us now. Ryan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem. It's always a pleasure. Scott, you know, I I'm hoping that one day you're going to call me up and say, hey, Ryan, Everything is going swimmingly. It's all going according to plan. What do you think of that? <laughs> what would you say if I said that to you? I'd have to. You'd say, "Wake up! You're, you're dreaming, Ryan. You're dreaming. Wake up, man. Are you uh, surprised? Alarm clock. Exactly. Are you surprised here? Any surprises? I'm not terribly surprised. I mean, the fact that the province spent three months getting back to us with an answer meant that this was a politically sensitive issue for them, and they weren't quite too sure how to proceed. So really what they've done here is they have punted the decision and the responsibility back to Hamilton City Council. Oh, so no, said, they hate when that happens. <laughs> you know, I have to say, to the province's uh, credit, that they have really tried to treat municipalities as equal partners in governance uh, for good and bad. And in this case, it would have been easy for them to come back with a hard no, for example, yeah. or even with a hard yes. Yes, we'll let you do it. Yeah. But instead, they're trying to say, look, we think this is a terrible idea. In fact, even the, uh, Sylvester literally wrote, uh, we think this is a really bad idea. This is not in the city's interest. Uh, and then listed a whole bunch of really good reasons why. If you insist on doing it, then we have a billion-dollar asset that we have to protect, and we're going to need some serious guarantees and commitments from the city in terms of taking on the responsibility, taking on the risk, taking on the cost obligations, you know, operating a control center, training, hiring, certifying, managing, supervising staff, managing customer complaints, all of this stuff. There's a lot to it. And whereas if, um, if 
um, Metrolinx is responsible for operating and maintaining the system as uh, was specified under the memorandum of agreement that they signed with council two years ago, then that's their responsibility and the city will have a defined obligation that gets negotiated in the master contract. If we take on operations, we take on all of the operational costs and all of the operational uncertainties. I can't possibly imagine council thinking that's a good idea after the amount of hand-wringing that they've been doing about the city's possible operational costs under the agreement. Uh, uh, William says via Facebook, just wondering, does Metrolink have any success stories from my media gleanings over the, uh, over the years? They don't seem to have been the pinnacle of cost efficiency. Uh, how do you answer that? The vast majority of Metrolink's projects are successful. Uh, that's not newsworthy. You read about the ones that run over budget and run, you know, and sort of go uh, beyond schedule. Mm-hmm. Most of their projects are on time and on budget. Again, that's not newsworthy stuff. So if you're, if all you know about Metrolinks is what you've read about them in articles about projects that didn't do well, you're going to think they can't do anything right. Could we assume the same about HSR? <laughs> well, I mean, HSR does not have a very good track record, and they haven't for a very long time. And there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. There are reasons that have to do with the way council regards transit as sort of an annoying cost to be minimized. There are obviously some serious issues uh, around how the HSR is managed. Um, and, you know, there's been a, a, a culture of sort of decline and disinvestment that has prevailed there for a very long time. It's going to take a long time for the city to dig its way out of that cultural hole that it's stuck in. I don't think this is the best time to take on a major new initiative like operating the LRT system. Maybe they can keep our buses on the road. Maybe, uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Ryan, maybe this would help cheer them all up. You know, running the LRT, it's a shiny new toy. And, you know, maybe this would help all of that. All of that, uh, you know, work towards g- goodwill. Uh, <laughs> are you willing to bet a billion dollars that that's going to work? No, not really. Uh, what is the advantage of the HSR running the LRT? What, what is the actual reason? Well, the, the, so the ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, uh, they uh, are the union that represents HSR uh, operations and maintenance workers. So they have a campaign called Keep Transit Public. And their position is that employees who work in public transit should be public employees. Whereas the Metrolink's model, as you, you know, alluded earlier, it's, it's a contract to a private consortium that's going to do the completed detailed design, build, finance, operate, and maintain the system. So the system will be owned by Metrolinx, which is a public crown agency, but it will be operated on a day-to-day basis by employees of a private consortium. The ATU's position is that these should be public employees and that you have better accountability when you have public employees and public management. Uh, my guess is these Metrolinx, these people that are running these uh, uh, systems would be union employees anyway, would they not? Oh, of course. I mean, there's, there's the, the thing is that see, the, the province did, the, their procurement model is they do what's called a request for qualifications. So they put out a call and they say, we're going to be having a, a project that's going to have this, this scope. You know, it's going to be designing, building, um, financing, operating and maintaining an LRT system. And we're, we invite uh, consortia to come forward and present to us their qualification to take on a job like this. So companies come forward and say, okay, we think that we can bid on this project because we have these qualifications. Once Metrolinx has a short list of qualified applicants, then they put out a request for proposals where they actually submit their plan to to run the thing. And then Metrolinx picks the best contract. There aren't any companies that would pass the qualifications phase that don't already have a large unionized workforce.
yeah. Uh, is there, uh, if the city takes this on, obviously it's been suggested it's going to cost them more money, it's going to delay the project. D- does anybody have an appetite for that? Well, I think there are some people around the council table who will have an appetite for it. And for the most part, they're the councillors who are opposed to LRT and want to see the project fail. Yeah. So that, that four to five month delay, you see, if they take operation out of the contract, Metrolink's already finished that request for qualifications phase. Mm-hmm. We're ready to put the project out to tender now. Yeah. But if we take operations out, we have to restart the whole process. Right. That means adding four or five months, and it means we won't get a contract signed until after the next election. Uh, so just delay, delay, delay. Uh, uh, At the end of the day, how do you think this is going to play out? Because with this report or this note from uh, from Metrolinx, obviously uh, saying that we have to take the city would have to take on the liability and, of course, run this. I mean, how are you going to sell that to Hamiltonians? Sure. I mean, council, if nothing else, we can say that council has been extremely cost conscious and cost sensitive over the last several years. You know, certainly their dealings on the LRT file has been uh, driven by an almost pathological fear of taking on any operational cost obligations. Um, So I hope that common sense will prevail and that they'll realize that they're really not in a position to take on this level of responsibility when they have to get their own affairs in order first. But one thing that I've learned from this council is that they're totally unpredictable and I have no idea how this is going to play out. So you have no idea where this is going to go? I mean, I wish I did. Uh, if this starts being delayed, are you worried that this will uh, uh, somehow jeopardize the, pro- the uh, project? Well, every delay is, is an opportunity to, uh, to, to have something go wrong. I mean, building a project this big is like balancing a gigantic uh, triangle on its point. It's hard to sustain for a very long time. And the longer you can delay it, the more you increase the likelihood that some aspect of the various different things that have to be aligned will fall out of alignment. Uh, for example, the provincial election is coming up in June. Now, all three major parties have stated that, they're, that they support the Hamilton LRT plan and that they will uh, honour the funding commitments. But you know what happens after an election is over. If a new party comes in, they could say, oh, you know what, the finances are worse than we expected. We have to make some sacrifices. And suddenly the project is on the chopping block. Uh, how is uh, HSR reacting to this? How are the unions reacting to this, do you think? Uh, we haven't heard yet, actually. Uh, no, I've yet, to hear a, I've yet to hear a peep. Yeah, I haven't heard any statement from the ATU yet. Um, you know, and, and I think it's important, we haven't actually heard from the HSR uh, management whether they want to take this on. I mean, obviously, they're going to take direction from council, but I don't know if the appetite to take this over is coming from the HSR or if it's a political decision coming from the council. Well, oddly enough, Ryan, in all the calls that we've made this morning, nobody really wants to talk about this right now. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and, and for, for, for I mean, management employees, they don't have the luxury of being able to say, yes, I think this is a good idea, or no, I think it's a bad idea. Yeah. They have to follow council's direction, and that's only fair and proper. Really, the ultimate decision is council's to make. And uh, now one thing that I guess is a silver lining in all this is that what Metrolinx has said is that council has until January 24th to confirm that they agree to Metrolinx's list of conditions if they want to take this on. Mm. If, they, if council doesn't say anything and that deadline passes, then Metrolinx will continue with the current procurement model. Right. So it means they've, they've kind of put in uh, a safeguard to prevent council from delaying this forever. 
Very interesting. Going to be fascinating to see how this all pans out. That being said, uh, Ryan, my opinion in, in all of this is is this seals the deal. It's it's you know it's up to Metrolinks and that's the end of it. I mean, uh, unless council wants to, because again, e- even with uh, Metrolinks recommending against this, I mean, if there are problems down the road, I mean, my goodness, they can just wash their hands of the whole thing, and it all rests on Hamilton to to uh, mop up the mess, so to speak. Exactly. Ryan McGreal has been with us. Editor, raise the hammer. Uh, Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I want to read you really quickly my commentary for today to get us started on this topic. And the whole idea, my whole thoughts behind this is, are we advancing as a society sexually? Are we going backwards And uh, here's the commentary. Uh, How do you know when a situation is a pattern or an anomaly? Well, when it keeps happening over and over again. In the wake of the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse allegations, I started asking female friends and co-workers if this sort of thing had ever happened to them. I was amazed at the stories I heard both socially and professionally, and even more so began to wonder why I was not seeing this. Fast forward to local CHCH-TV reporter Britt Dixon, who who recently gained widespread attention online because of her experience trying to cover the recent college strike at Mohawk. After getting hit twice in one day with verbal sexual abuse while doing her job, she experienced the same thing interviewing a police officer at police headquarters. It's bad enough to commit such an assault on a person, but I always find it astounding that someone would be so stupid as to do such a thing in front of a camera. Now, someone has done the exact same thing in the presence of a police officer on the steps of a police station. Really? Have we become so accustomed to sexual assault that we feel comfortable doing it in front of a cop? Now I do feel old. Fast forward to my 15-year-old daughter telling me it's common practice for guys to feel up girls while brushing past during class change at her high school. Does anyone with kids, let alone a daughter, feel good about that? Are we really that much more advanced than the rest of the world on equality, including sexuality, or are we moving backwards? Clearly, we need more discussion on what is acceptable behavior and what is not. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, uh, Alyssa PR, pop culture expert as well, Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and rela- uh, relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com, and Aaron Cricket-Wilder, public education coordinator with Sasha in Hamilton. Thank you very much all for joining me today. Uh, Alyssa, let's start with you. Uh, have we become so accustomed to this that we don't even care if there's a cop standing in front of us? You know, I think what has happened here, and the other two experts will certainly weigh in on this, is that we have become accustomed to a learned behavior that nobody has ever called out before. And unfortunately, it took a very high-profile bloodletting of Harvey Weinstein to bring this to the fore. You know, for the past two years, we've been hearing about women uh, coming out against Bill Cosby, and nobody gave it that much credence. And then suddenly, you have something like this happen, and it really opens the floodgates. It gives women who have previously been scared to step forward and say, this is not acceptable. So in your intro, you said, you know, have we gone backwards as a society? I don't think that we have changed all that much. And this is a real deep systemic change that really needs to happen. Jess O'Reilly, what are your thoughts? Is it getting worse? No, I'm in agreement um, that we are, we are not regressing, we are improving. And this di- dialogue itself 
I think is going to be a big part of the improvement in people's behavior. And, you know, as you were saying, it's high profile, rich, white, famous women who have had to come out and say this happened to us. So that 100% of us, and it's not just women, certainly men, particularly LGBTQ men are also harassed, can speak up and say, this isn't okay. We don't need to laugh it off. We don't need to try and be the cool one. If something feels uncomfortable, we can say so. And we live in a culture that supports, has supported harassment. And I think that we're turning a corner right now and saying it's not cool anymore. Uh, Aaron Cricket Wilder from Sasha. If we're getting better, Aaron, how come this is still happening? And, and how come it's happening in front of a cop? It's still happening because, like Alyssa mentioned, uh, people feel empowered to do it. And it's still happening also because we're having this cultural moment right now. There is going to be backlash against it. There are going to be people who, when they hear about Weinstein's story, the things that he's done, we also uh, quite often only hear the most extreme cases. So then people mm-hmm. are left quite often thinking, oh, my goodness, I didn't do that, but I did something in the past that's not making me feel great. And sometimes that turns into a backlash um, or people accusing us of policing their sexuality, which is not what we're doing, a world that has consent at its core actually will be a much free world, freer world sexually, mm-hmm. and, and we would look forward to that, people being okay doing what they want to with their bodies and also feeling comfortable saying, no, they don't want to. We're, we're seeing a bit of backlash. We're also seeing stuff like the other panelists have mentioned that existed there the entire time, but now we just have more platforms. And, and finally, um, Jess did mention, you know, when white women say stuff, it's heard very, very different, differently than when black, brown, and indigenous women say the same exact thing. So especially with Bill Cosby is a great example. We didn't listen until Hannibal Burris made a joke about it, about Bill Cosby's abuse in his uh, stand-up routine. So we really, really need to be listening to those most impacted by harassment, violence, and sexual assault. Alyssa, we've talked about this many times that the people around some of these big stars uh, knew what was going on. That being said, you know, I'm talking to co-workers and female friends, even my daughter and her friends, and why am I so naive not to see this? I mean, am I that stupid that I can't see this unless it's explained to me the way you, you people are? Because women don't come forward with it. So in, in some cases, and unfortunately, we tend to laugh it off or, or push it off and just think, okay, well, boys are just being boys. Because we've been taught that all our lives. You know, I'm in my mid-50s, and, you know, I remember walking through the halls at uh, in public school when guys thought it was funny to lift up a girl's skirt to see if they could get away with it. I don't know if my other panelists remember that, but as I'm sitting here thinking, did that never really happen to me in public school? And at the time, you know, we thought it was kind of funny. and But it wasn't funny. And what was it that empowered our classmates to think that they could do something like this? So, you know, this is a type of behavior that's done to flout convention, to do because they know that it's wrong. And I can't help but think, but what happened to that reporter is a backlash to say, okay, you can say whatever you want about boys being boys, but I'm still going to do it anyway. So I don't care what other people think. And and that's why um, the reporter suffered that um, very, very unfortunate verbal assault. Surprised this is happening, though, in front of cameras even? It's got, uh, like, what does that say that it's people are, are feel comfortable enough to do it in front of a cop or in front of a camera. Well, I think the camera gives somebody a platform. You know, everybody wants their 15 minutes, or in this case, 15 seconds worth of fame. So they feel that they can do this. I mean, news and information is almost disposable until it's replaced by something else. So people still feel emboldened that they would have a platform in order to make their contrary views known. Uh, You know, I find it 
unbelievable, you know, really, that this is still happening, even after it's been brought to the fore, especially with Shauna Hunt. It happened on City TV, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of play about that. But people are still doing it because they think what? They think it's funny? No. Uh, Jess O'Reilly, you know, I'm talking to my daughter about this, and she's like, yeah, you'll be it's crowded during class in the hallway, and, you know, you don't even know who's done it, and someone squeezed your rear end. Surprised to be hearing that in this day still? Not at all. Um, you know, as one of your other panelists said, it's not that our behavior has changed, it's that our dialogue has finally changed. There are cameras in more places. And, you know, you say, that you, how, how come I'm not seeing it? And I think what I want to highlight is that a moment that you might see as awkward at a holiday party or a joke, you may interpret it as awkward, but the person at whom the comment is directed may feel and experience it as harassment. You don't feel threatened, but someone else does. Mm. So I think it's up to all of us to be more aware. And we look, you know, millennials are more likely to stand up for issues that don't directly adversely affect them. They're more likely to stand up for gender equality. Um, and, you know, you talk about doing it in front of the cops, and I know that I'm ready for the messages here, but let's not pretend that a blue uniform is a guarantee of respect for all genders and all sexual orientations. Mm. Right? You know, there are issues within police forces where this, this is an issue for women being harassed as well, and LGBTQ cops are people who want to move into that police force. So no community is immune to this. And... Um, I think we're just seeing more of it because in the digital age, there are obviously more cameras. Uh, We talked earlier in the week, uh, there was a story about, uh, I I believe it was the Girl Scouts uh, came out and said, don't uh, force your kids Mm -hmm. to hug their relatives. What's your Mm -hmm. thought on that, Jess? Is, is Is that going too far or is that being more sensitive to how the person feels as opposed to what looks good or politically correct? I think it has nothing to do with political correctness and all to do everything to do with bodily autonomy. If I don't want to hug, I don't have to hug someone, whether I'm six years old or 60 years old. And this is a small thing that we don't realize negates and undermines a culture of consent. So if you are telling a child, no, 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 you have to give her a hug, or you have to give grandma a hug, you have to hug your, hug your uncle, you're telling them, you don't get to choose, I get to choose for you. And that's not what we want for our children, regardless of gender. I don't want to tell my child who gets to touch them. They get to decide who gets to touch them. And I think that's something that we're really teaching from a younger age. It's a small step. Anyone who's up in arms about that, I think maybe is seeing it from a different angle. We're not saying don't be affectionate. We're saying give one another options in how we express affection, whether it's with a smile, with a pat on the back, with a hug, with a kiss. And you're going to find that if someone makes them feel comfortable, of course they're going to more likely want to be affectionate with that person. Aaron, uh, Aaron uh, Cricket Wilder from Sasha, um, are we here? Are you hearing more complaints? Are you hearing more reporting? What are you hearing on the ground level? So we, anytime sexual assault is in the news, whether it's uh, a verdict that when you know the Portuski verdict came out on Friday, it wasn't super. Um, he killed three women in Renfrew two years ago. Um, anytime we hear stories about that in the news, we will have more calls. And we are chronically underfunded at Sasha. Today is Giving Tuesday, and I would put a plea out there that we do need the community support because um, folks who've experienced sexual assault deserve to be seen immediately. Um, and so when Me Too, the hashtag Me Too resurfaced, it was created 10 years ago by a black woman and was mm-hmm. retweeted by Alyssa Milano. Um, 
And around Harvey Weinstein, uh, we had people calling to ask us because they wanted to join the Me Too group, support group, even though we didn't start that hashtag and we didn't uh, have a, a support group specifically like that running. We have other groups running. So, you know, anytime sexual assault in the news, we have more um, calls come up. But about the bum touching in between classes, I see it all the time. I talk to 5,000 high school students a year, uh, grade 9 through 12, and every single class in between, I see something that is unwanted happen and that's why my bystander intervention scenario that we work through is you know you in between classes you see somebody's bum being grabbed and you don't think that it's wanted what do you do and so we're equipping students with those skills not just to protect themselves and not just to make sure that they never assault someone but also do what 99% of students are going to see they're going to run into the situation sometime in their lives that somebody is being touched or made to feel uncomfortable with their sexuality in a way and so how do they step in? And it's really, really interesting, those conversations we're having with uh, young teens about how they have a role to play in preventing and stepping in when, it's, when it seems kind of lower on the scale, when it's just words or when it's just bum grabbing. I use those air quotes for that. Also, I think we still see FRTP still happen. We still see female news reporters being harassed because this is a question about women being allowed to exist in public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and we see... It's entirely performative. The reason it's still happening in front of cameras, I hear you asking that question so clearly, but there was a camera and a cop right there. Mm. They're performing this toxic masculinity that men, unfortunately, have been taught to do. And it is so, toxic masculinity is so restrictful and hurtful to men, and they're doing a lot of harm, and it's the camera. That's why we only see people yelling, you know, F her right in the vulva in front of cameras, because they want to be seen done doing it. The sexual violence that women experience and marginalized folks queer folks, indigenous folks, black folks and brown folks experience on the regular is both very, very well hidden in our culture and also right in our face. And that's something we need to remember. You've talked a lot, Scott, about like, how am I not seeing this? Mm -hmm. It's because we've been taught not to see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alyssa, it's been a while. Well, it seems like every week there's another uh, person who's, who's on the list of of those being accused of sexual harassment. We've talked in the past how, uh, you know, it started with Bill Cosby for this latest round, I suppose, uh, and then it kind of died out. Is this staying in the news? Is it just that the fact we keep hearing of another one each week that's keeping it in the news? Uh, does this have legs this time? Well, you know, here's what I fear. I fear that we're going to get... Um it, we're, we're going to get tired of hearing about this because, you know, when mm -hmm. you get together with your friends or your family, you're just talking, and mm -hmm. uh, they go, oh, who is it this week? So I would hate to see that there would be news fatigue around this subject. And with any mm -hmm. subject in the news, it doesn't matter what it is, there is a sense of news fatigue. And it tends to have to be very blockbuster to get our um, our attention again. So I don't think it's going to die out. I think that... You know, what, what bothered me with the Bill Cosby case is that we didn't believe these women. And it happened a long time ago with, you know, he was giving them, allegedly, uh, and I've read a lot about this, they were giving him some sort of opioid yeah. and the women would pass out and then they would sexually abuse them. Um, and we didn't believe them. And then suddenly our thinking changes. And, you know, what made it change? What was so different about what Harvey Weinstein did to women uh, that other, you know, that Bill Cosby was doing? I'm not so sure there was anything different. But because we started started to hear these stories and sometimes you know we in communications think well you know there's been a bit of a bubbling up there we've been talking about the subject for a while so all it would take is one really great news story or one really great narrative in order to blow this wide open and that's what happened and i think that everybody in hollywood or in the entertainment industry and you know we haven't even talked about industry industry yet mm. 
That hasn't yeah. even happened because women are much more fe- fearful of their jobs there. Um, and that would really blow up in the floodgates as far as I'm concerned. But you know, we haven't even touched that. But honestly, I think that anybody who knows that they engage in any sort of these transgressions has been lawyering up, has been messaging up, has been maybe threatening or going back to these women, like you better not say anything. So, you know, the next one that comes out is going to be very, very blockbuster. And trust me, it will be there. But the other thing I wanted to mention um, with my other two panelists when we talked about the Girl Guides message, you know, it was interesting. When that message first came out, even I sat back and went, like, what? And, you know, the problem with that message was is that it was a good message. Hmm. Like, I don't want to have to hug Uncle Fred because he creeps me out, and I'm seven years old, and I already get that. And had they message it a a little bit better or a little bit tighter, sometimes when um, organizations want to go for the clickbait and they want to get noticed, they go with the most salacious headline, and it's of their own creation. And then you've got to dig underneath to find out the real meat of the message. When you don't get all your messages straight up front, you are open to, I mean, yes, there's a lot of conversation, and we're talking about it right now, but you're opening your message up to a lot of interpretation. And I think that, you know, the other day when I was watching Your Morning with Ben Mulrooney, and he just went off, he said, the girl guys can't tell me who, I'm the judge of my children, and I'll tell them who they can hug and who they can't. Well, you know what, Ben, had you read a few paragraphs down, you probably would have gotten the essence of this instead of sounding like an absolute Mm. jerk. Uh, (laughs) Jess, are, are guys getting this message? Yes, and not strongly enough. I actually think one of the scariest reminders that came out of, for instance, the Me Too campaign was that a lot of men, hetero men, were saying things like, I can't believe this. This is so awful. We need to persecute these guys. And again, you t- your other panelists, of course, highlighting we're talking about extreme cases, salacious headlines, high profile people. But the world is not divided into the good and the bad. And I keep saying this because we live in a culture where many of us do this without realizing it. And so I think that more people, regardless of gender, are willing to take a step back now, especially younger people. You know I'm an an optimist for the future, and say, you know what? This is a, a cultural norm. This is not an anomaly. How have I upheld this norm? What can I do better? And I see more people, especially more people in positions of power where they don't have anything personally to gain financially or anything like that, but, you know, contributing to the world in a positive way. But, you know, I see more powerful men, like white men, sitting back and thinking, okay, like, I I have done this. I have done something like this. And you can change. Like, come on, most of us. I can think back to when I was young. I'm not a man. But I remember when I was a teenager saying something to a girl, calling her a name. And I look back and think, you know what, I can do better. And and it's not that I sit here and feel guilty and say I'm a terrible person. It's not good and bad. We're all a part of a culture that upholds harassment and misogyny. And we need to tear it down. And the only way we can tear it down is by naming it instead of saying, nope, nope, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Right. And we have to say, you know, what? I've done bad stuff, too. I've treated people terribly. I've treated people with disrespect. And sometimes that has been rooted in misogyny. And sometimes that has been rooted in, you know, focusing, really honing in on marginalized communities because I knew I could get away with it. And we need to say, right, I'm not perfect. This is what I'm going to do better in the future. And I think more people and not enough are starting to do that. 
Dr. Jess O'Reilly has been with us, sexologist and relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com. Aaron Cricket-Wilder, public education coordinator with Sasha in Hamilton. And Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Uh, thank you to all. A great discussion, and we should have it again. Thank you so much for all three of you for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The federal government's plan to legalize marijuana one step closer with Bill C-45, but as well, because this isn't cut and dry, it's a complicated issue, uh, users of medical marijuana in Canada are reaching out to their reps uh, to have the drug be considered similar to other affordable medication and have taxation be removed. To talk about all of this, Jonathan Zed is with us. He is Executive Director of Canadians for Fair Access to Medical Marijuana and is on the line with us now. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks so much, Scott. Good afternoon. What is Canadians for Fair Access to Medical Marijuana? Tell us about your organization. We're a national nonprofit uh, advocacy organization that represents medical cannabis patients, and we have a special focus on access, affordability, and research. Um, a couple weeks ago, after the government's uh, announcement of proposing excise taxes onto medical cannabis, in addition to sales tax, which is already applied today, we launched a letter-writing campaign called Don'tTaxMedicine.ca. And in that time period of under two weeks, we've already received 12,000 responses of patients and other Canadians sending letters to their MPs. How does this compare to other medicines? Uh, why is it different for medical cannabis, do you think? That's a great question, and, and that's really the point of what we're raising in this issue. In Canada, no prescription medications are charged any tax. Uh, as I mentioned, sales tax has already been applied to medical cannabis, and this is something we've been advocating against for a couple of years now. Uh, we see taxation of any kind not aligning with the tax policy of prescription medications. So re- when the government announced the excise tax policy of adding even more taxes, adding up to over $800 a year on average for a patient, often people who are using medical cannabis have very severe disabilities. Uh, this is quite an insult added on to the injury of already taxing cannabis. So patients have made it clear, and Canadians across the country, that this is wrong. And the government needs to listen to their constituents. Um, and at the end of the, the, the consultation period, we hope that they'll come to the right decision and eliminate all tax on medical cannabis. Uh, what taxes are on this product and which should all of them be removed? Yeah, so currently um, there is GST, HST, which depending on what province you're in varies, but in Ontario, that's 13%. So that's typical sales tax applied to various products. But again, prescription medications don't have any sales tax. They're exempt from sales tax. So we think medical cannabis, when obtained through a physician for a medical condition, should be treated the same. Why, do you, think, why, do, you think, why do you think one is viewed differently than the other? There's a few different reasons behind it, but essentially the government has a court-ordered responsibility to provide reasonable access to medical cannabis. Uh, We think that needs to extend to affordability, and that means treating it like all other medications. Hmm. Uh, What about insurance implications? Does it have something to do with that? Other medications may be insured, this one isn't, or is it? What are the chances of that? Right now, there's extremely limited cost coverage for medical cannabis across the country. Um, But interestingly enough, one of the 
plans that covers the most uh, medical cannabis in Canada is Veterans Affairs. This is a plan administered by the government of Canada, mm. and they are essentially taxing themselves here. So affordability is an issue across the country, and uh, applying further tax to patients will harm them. Do you think that uh, the, the insurance in some way plays a factor in any of this, or is that just is that a moot point here? I don't know if it plays a relevant factor in terms of a policy conversation, but it gives context to why the government really needs to treat it like a medicine. Uh, Right now, there is very limited cost coverage, which means that the vast majority of patients aren't being able to afford their medicine, uh, and many of whom are choosing between basic life necessities like food and rent versus choosing adequate doses of their medicine, and that's not right. Let me ask you this, uh, Jonathan, is the product that will be available recreationally the same as the product that will be available medically? Is it the same thing? Is it different? Some of the products are a bit different, but essentially it is grown by the same uh, licensed cultivators uh, or licensed producers, and, uh, but there is two different regulatory systems. So if you're accessing cannabis for medical purposes, it'll be like what it is today, and for the viewers who aren't familiar with that, that's uh, a patient goes to a physician or a nurse practitioner. They get uh, essentially what's a prescription, and then they register with a federally regulated producer who ships you their medicine. So that will be the same system that exists for medical cannabis moving forward, even with the LCBO or their version of the cannabis stores for recreational purposes. Patients will still have distinct access that needs to be uh, through a healthcare provider. And again, this is very similar to any prescription medication. So from a tax perspective, it's really uh, no reason why they couldn't eliminate tax when you go to your doctor for medical purposes. The fact that it may be the same drug that is being administered recreationally and medicinally, do you think that plays a factor in this? I mean, it would be like saying, you know, and I know this is an apples to oranges discussion, but it would be like as if somebody was being uh, prescribed a bottle of alcohol uh, as opposed to going into a store and actually buying it. One may use it for medicine, which, of course, is not the case, and, and one may use it for recreational. But you're, if you have the same product that can be consumed recreationally and medically, is that where there's an issue? The government has alluded to that, but I, I don't really personally see that as much of an issue, quite honestly. There's a few different factors. One is we need to rely on our physicians to properly assess patients. We have a great community of doctors in Canada, and they need to, we need to trust them. And, and there's prescribing guidelines in place to prevent abuse. The, the way to prevent abuse is not to tax the 99% of legitimate patients that are in the system. So, yes, there's a potential chance of abuse that's not yet been displayed by any research we've seen. Um, but again, there's a vast majority of Canadians that are using this as a medicine, and we need to treat it like a medicine for those people suffering from chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. And I would also add to that one more point, which is we don't eliminate our social services, even though we know that there's levels of abuse in them. We reform policies to ensure there's no abuse. We don't totally eliminate uh, uh, these kinds of insurance programs and other affordability measures for people with disabilities. What do you think your chances are of this coming to fruition? What do you think the chances are of dropping the tax for medical cannabis? I'm not exactly sure uh, the, the response from the government yet. We're very hopeful that it will be positive, and they're going to listen to the vast majority of Canadians who I think are on side with this. 
Uh, it's very simple, I think, that this is a medicine. They've been instructed by the courts to provide reasonable access to it that needs to expand, extend to tax policy. Um, and in every other jurisdiction in the world that has a dual system for medical and recreational cannabis, they have differential taxation. So Canada would be sending quite a, a message by saying they don't believe that this is a medicine by doing this. Are insurance companies recognizing this yet and, and offering coverage? Are you seeing that for medicinal purposes? Currently, there is a very limited amount of coverage, but we are seeing progression and a number of large-scale unions and employers on the private sector have started covering it. Um, and we're expecting that that trend continue um, as people uh, become more familiar with it and as the research develops. Uh, but really, affordability does remain a huge challenge for patients that can't be understated. So a, a tax policy change would go a long way to helping patients, and it's the right thing to do. Jonathan Zed has been with us, Executive Director of Canadians for Fair Access to Medical Marijuana. They are looking for medical cannabis to be uh, tax-free uh, like other medications. Jonathan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, the federal government obviously planning to legalize this one step closer as Bill C-45 uh, is, has gone forward into the Senate, uh, into the Senate although uh, they are saying that it could be stalled uh, in the Senate. Joining us to talk more about all of this, Jenna Valerini, Valeriani is with us, PhD candidate in sociology and collaborative program in addiction studies and is with us now. Jenna, uh, Jenna thank you for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, thanks for having me. Let me, before we get into uh, this bill moving uh, one step closer uh, to reality, what are your thoughts in regard to uh, the Canadians for Fair Access to Medical Marijuana saying that, you know, if it's medicine, it should be tax-free? Well, I think that, you know, I completely support their position here. I think that we have to remember that um, access to cannabis for medical reasons, one of the biggest barriers that we see coming up again and again in the research is uh, affordability. So this puts a lot of strain on people who are already struggling to access this as a medication. You know, and I think that we have to put in, you know, trust into this idea that physicians are prescribing, you know, cannabis as an option. They have a process that they need to go through as well before prescribing. So I think that, you know, this idea that Bill Blair had stated about really being concerned about who's going to be taking advantage of this program to kind of avoid uh, taxes is really the wrong way to approach it. And rather, we should be really thinking about um, how this actually bars a lot of Canadians from accessing the medication that they need. A lot of people who are using cannabis for medical reasons have tried a host of other medications. Typically, for physicians, prescribing medical cannabis isn't the front line, you know, isn't the first thing that they're doing. Uh, So I think that we really need to kind of respect that relationship and also not put any undue hardship on uh, 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 medical cannabis users. Do you think we're going to to see the day when this is covered by insurance companies just like any other drug? I would like to think so. I think we're seeing some kind of movement kind of in that direction. I mean, I'm sure Jonathan went over this, but the lack of DIN, uh, drug identification number for cannabis has traditionally been a problem, but I think that there are ways around that. For example, uh, we know a lot of folks who have gotten medication from the U.S. that doesn't have a DIN number in Canada covered uh, by their insurance plan. So there certainly are mechanisms there. It just seems a little bit more complicated. I think, you know, it would be really great to get some studies that demonstrate kind of the 
net benefit of covering cannabis so that the actual um, employers are, are thinking about ways that they can integrate this into their uh, coverage plan. So it's not really the insurance company, but rather the employers that need to uh, need to include this in the benefit plans that they offer. You bring up a valid point, Jenna. Do we have enough research on all of this? You know, the research is really, really growing rapidly. You know, even five years ago, I would say we aren't where we are today. We're having so there are some really big projects happening across Canada. I think one of the tricky things with cannabis is that it's used for so many different symptoms and ailments that it's really hard to get that DIN number to be associated with a particular condition. So, for example, we have research going on right now in Canada that's looking at cannabis use and PTSD, cannabis use and chronic pain. Uh, I know the Sick uh, sick Kids Hospital is looking at epilepsy and the use of cannabis and cannabis derivatives. So I think that it's rapidly expanding. I think a lot of the legal industry is also kind of contributing to uh, a lot of that work and providing funding where there wasn't really funding. So the legalization of cannabis is really great in the sense that it's going to uh, tear down a few of the barriers that a lot of researchers face when they're trying to research cannabis, which has traditionally been, uh, you know, a restricted narcotic, really difficult to uh, get research projects funded, but also really hard to get ethics reviews to you know, get permission to do this kind of testing using human subjects. So I think it'll help uh, really progress this agenda a lot quicker. Uh, how does the addiction community feel about this legalization? Ooh, well, that's a really complicated question because I think you'll find people kind of that hold a diverse uh, set of opinions within kind of the quote-unquote addictions community. So I think from a public health perspective, so if you talk to public health perspectives, they would oftentimes balance the, you know, the harms of criminalization and keeping cannabis prohibited with the actual kind of health outcomes of using cannabis. So I think it kind of depends on where you're reaching to in the community. I think a lot of people who work with, um, you know, people who are at risk of substance misuse issues have different concerns than, for example, uh, you know, people who are working with youth uh, versus, you know, people who uh, are just, you know, epidemiologists. So I think that there are all different concerns coming from uh, different corners of the space. Uh, obviously, uh, th- this has all started. Uh, this is all in motion now. It is now uh, before the Senate. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, if it, if it isn't stalled there, that it could pass as early as July 1st. What will life like be like in Canada after July 1st? That's really uh, that's a really interesting question. I think it's really um, important that we're going to see kind of around that July deadline, a lot of things really change. So I think in every province, we're going to see something unfold that's a little bit different. Um, I think that Canadians are a little bit spoiled in that, you know, those of us that live in kind of these bigger cities, uh, you know, there's been these kind of illegal cannabis dispensaries that have existed all across Canada since 1997. And that's kind of given us a taste or a preview into what we can expect when cannabis is legalized. I think it's going to be a lot more restrictive than that. Um, So, you know, in Ontario, we're talking about kind of LCBO-style cannabis shops. Uh, but I think it'll be something really different and really novel to be able to walk into a store, even if, you know, it's, it's really tightly regulated and being able to purchase your cannabis on site. So it's kind of cool to be in the middle of this transition where we're really seeing like years of kind of prohibition and, and years of kind of stigma around cannabis, particularly users and sellers really be torn down here. So I think it's really going to change uh, change the way that we think about cannabis use. I think it's going to open the door up to more really interesting research and really kind of uh, shape the uh, industry moving forward. Uh, as you mentioned, after years of prohibition, but clearly that hasn't stopped or slowed down consumption, can you put this genie back in the bottle and change the system like this to a way which will appeal to Ontarians or Canadians? 
I think that that's a really uh, good question and actually one that I, I'm sure politicians are really struggling with and not really considering that, you know, what we're really trying to do, undo here are like decades of patterns of how people purchase uh, cannabis. We're trying to change that. We're trying to move that into a legal and regulated space. So I think that it's going to take time. I think right off the bat, uh, you know, for example, the Ontario government has proposed they're going to have about 40 stores open in Ontario in July. I mean, at the peak of the dispensary uh, scene here in Toronto, we had 150 at one point that were all busy and weren't really competing with each other. So I think that it's really interesting to, to kind of Think about that, you know what, this is going to take time. It's a really good step in the right direction, but there's going to be a lot of bumps along the way. I think access and availability is still going to be an issue. I don't think people are going to want to wait in line for two hours to access the, um, the cannabis shop. So let me, let me ask you this, Jenna. Will this be like Target coming to Canada? Everybody goes, oh, I can't wait, I can't wait. And then they all stand in line. They go, oh, this is crappy. This isn't, oh, I don't like this at all. And then the <laughs> next thing you know, they don't come back to Target and Target leaves town. Um, can we see the same thing here where people show up and they go, you know, this just ain't worth the hassle. And I, you know, I, I can be, I'm better off doing what I was doing for the last however long. Uh, yep. And how important is it that they get this right the first time? You know, I think that we're all kind of expecting that this is going to kind of change as time goes on. But I think that you're hitting on something here where I think folks who maybe aren't really used to using cannabis or maybe purchase cannabis occasionally are going to love the shops, right? That's going to be something novel. It's going to be exciting. But for people who are regular cannabis users who have been accessing maybe from a friend or an acquaintance uh, or maybe even an illegal dispensary for the last, uh, you know, five, six, seven years, uh, I think that they're going to be kind of the harder demographic to really uh, kind of get on board. I think it's really going to take uh, a while for to cha- to really change those patterns. I think some of it comes down to cost. For example, if you purchase off the illegal market, there's a discount that comes with buying more more volume, right? So that's something that they're go- that is not going to obviously be offered at uh, these cannabis shop these legal cannabis shops. So I think things like that are kind of going to take a little bit of time to catch up, but that there is a lot of kind of net benefit that we're going to get by kind of slow, doing this a bit slower. I think that you're always going to have your critics and people are always going to be hard on whatever system the government comes up with, but kind of keeping in mind that this really is a, a step in the right direction and that there's, you know, it's a lot easier to start off tight and then open up, um, you know, mm-hmm. open up the program a little bit as we move on. Maybe that means, uh, you know, in the future, they're going to allow a handful of private retailers to also open up shops to complement those uh, government-controlled um, shops, you know, who knows what it could, it could really lead to. But I think starting off, um, you know, tighter from a public health perspective and then kind of opening it up slowly is a lot easier than kind of opening the floodgates and then trying to step back from that. Jenna Valeriani has been with us, Ph.D. candidate in sociology and the collaborative program in addiction studies, University of Toronto. Jenna, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.